2: Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. We're so happy to have you here, so happy to be here. My name is Lydia Cruz.
1: And I'm Justin Stiefel.
2: And I'm Maura Dooley. Welcome to it. One of the big things going on, of course, this summer, summer blockbusters. Are you guys a big fan of heading to the movies, catching some of the uh, big summer blockbusters out there?
1: Yeah, I am. I took my kids to go see Solo last week, and they had a good time at that. I don't know if they enjoy going to the movies to watch the movies or access to huge tubs of popcorn and soda. Oh, all
2: so good, Uh, yes.
1: I don't know what they like more, but uh, we all had a good time. And the movie that launched yesterday is a riff on the old Ocean's Eleven remake. Uh, This movie, Ocean's Eight, appeared in uh, theaters yesterday, and it has caused somewhat of a debate. And interestingly, Get your two thoughts
2: on it yeah this is a kind of a trend it seems like in Hollywood remaking some of the uh, classics with uh, all female casts, which is kind of interesting and intriguing to me and there are a ton of stars in this remake a ton of female actresses I love Kate Blanchett Sandra Bullock Anne Hathaway Helena Bonham Carter Mindy Kaling yeah the
3: list goes on Rihanna's in there yeah yeah, yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, and so this follows on with uh, last year's release of the remake of the Ghostbusters Mm -hmm. franchise Mm -hmm. and the play that that got. And, of course, people who are uh, trying to attack this Ocean's 8 remake, uh, they need to be reminded that the George Clooney-led Ocean's 11 team and Ocean's 12 theme and all that really was a remake of the Rat Pack's Ocean's 11 from the 1960s that featured true. Dean Martin and all those folks. so None of those people can claim originality when it comes <laughs> to this, except for the Rat Pack.
3: Very true. Well, I'm going to go check it out. I honestly didn't think the Ghostbusters movie was as good as I hoped, so hopefully this one is entertaining.
1: Well, we will look forward to your report next week. Yes, Thanks. we'll
2: get an official <laughs> review. In the meantime, what's going on in the headlines this
1: well, week? Well, you know, we talked early in the spring about the droughts that hit Europe and the uh, impact on Europe's wine crop and and the devastation that that is likely to bring. And now uh, we get reports out of the Champagne region of France that uh, in late May they were hit by hailstorms. They had hail the size of eggs falling in the middle of the grape-growing region of Champagne. In one area of Champagne alone, they lost 3% of the vineyards, just completely destroyed by Uh, this these hailstorms so it equates to about 145 million dollars in potential lost sales of champagne sales and uh that in and of itself uh you know as we have shortages sometimes the price goes up and champagne and prosecco and uh, sparkling wines are increasing in demand and uh, this could not have come at a worse time so if you're interested in true authentic champagne you might want to go stuck up on it now before the price goes up
2: sad from bad news to fake news this Napa winery story is really intriguing.
1: Yeah, we found this this week, and Charter Oak Winery and Studio in California is suing Google after receiving a number of what they say are fake reviews and refer to the winery as a toilet, and they call the staff members conniving, manipulative, and pompous. So this came from uh, CBS, and uh, they're they're talking about of the 27 reviews posted on Google about this particular company in St. Helena, California. The vast majority were five-star reviews. However, there are a small number of one-star reviews. They're being, uh, in the eyes of the owner, they think they're being left by a single person using different names and uh, potentially a former uh, employee, and so... The uh, owner has been going to Google and asking Google to take what they think are the fake ads down. And so far, Google has been non-responsive. And uh, so the owner sued. And this is going to small claims court uh, June 12th. So uh, we'll know more next week uh, if it gets reported in the news. But, you know, we are seeing more and more of this fake news stuff. And uh, folks who are business owners are not taking it sitting down.
3: Wow, well, that would be pretty awful if you have a small business and you have people leaving personal, yeah, personal issues with you for everyone to see, as if it is an opinion from their experience. There,
2: yeah, that's been one of the big downsides of sort of the rise of the Yelp review. And, and that side of it is that people have a lot of power and sometimes with great power comes abuse of that power
1: yeah and we see this in our own business I think customers are you know who are true customers who are really interested in learning about your business they are themselves beginning to sift through what they consider to be fake reviews yeah. and as a business owner uh, you know you have the opportunity to go online and respond online and we what we have found is if somebody has a comment our best option is to respond honestly and truthfully, directly in the same medium to the person who put the post on there and let people then decide for themselves what they think is accurate. And Of course, we always say, come in and talk to us and meet with us and you'll see how great our customer service is.
3: I think that's the best approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And finally news this week, Starbucks, if you recall earlier in the year, they had dabbled a little bit in alcohol. Well, now they're jumping on the gin bandwagon. And uh, Starbucks is now (laughs) uh, trying to tap into the gin craze. They are launching a Starbucks Reserve gin barrel-aged cold brew coffee. So what they're doing is they're getting barrels that were used to age gin, for barrel-aged gin, and then they are taking small batches of roasted beans and they are putting them into the barrels and letting them sit for a while and then they will end up making coffee cocktails non-alcoholic with this um, Rwanda coffee concentrate and ice and so they end up with this sparkling non-alcoholic drink that they describe as a twist on the gin and tonic but with coffee and no alcohol.
3: Wow. What do you think,
2: Lydia? You're the gin lover of the group. Well, I'm a gin lover and I'm a coffee lover. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in on this. I think that it's been kind of interesting to watch, being a local company, to watch Starbucks sort of dip their toe in this water and then commit more and more to this path.
1: Well, and they're doing this at the roastery, the Starbucks Reserve Roastery. So it's a chance for them to use that as a hands-on laboratory to get exposure to customers directly, figure out what customers want. And then as a big company, they can decide how are they going to uh, try and put that in the bigger practice on a bigger scale. If you are a company like Starbucks, your scale is so big that uh, if you find magic in a bottle and it hits, you then have to figure out how are we going to scale this thing up. So the biggest challenge for them is going to be how many good quality barrels are out there that they can acquire that were used to make aged gin. I'm telling you, that is a very small sample. (laughs) There are not a lot of people making aged gin. Thus, not a lot of used gin barrels in the market.
2: Coming up on Cast Club Radio, well, pretty much everybody. I think at this point, we've all been to a themed bar before pretty popular especially in the pacific northwest we have plenty of options to choose from anything from what sports bar to country western to i've seen star wars themed bars at this point coming up on cast club radio we're going to talk about this trend and if these themed bars actually detract from the cocktails that they're selling we'll explain it's next on cast club radio Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for being here, for joining us on this Saturday afternoon. My name's Lydia Cruz, Justin Stevel, Maura Dooley by my side. And our topic today, we're discussing themed bars. They seem to be a rising trend. We have plenty in the Pacific Northwest, but if you've been to any other city, there's usually a few that you can ask someone for a recommendation. They stand out. And uh, our our question today is, Do these themed bars detract from the actual drinks that they're serving, the products that they're selling?
1: Yeah. Well, it's a question of quality of the experience and the quality of how they mix their drinks and also the quality of the food if they've got a food offering. And this is the debate that any kind of proprietor has when they're trying to determine if they're going to open a a location of what they want to put into it. And if it's too gimmicky, it is not authentic. And it looks to the customers though it's trying to overcome shortfalls in the design and of the offering, then it's not going to be successful. And if the uh, gimmickry, if, if that's a word, <laughs> is uh, not overly done and is tasteful and respectful, but still pays homage to what they're trying to do, well, then, you know, maybe it lets the cocktail and the food shine out and uh, come forward.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't think about that because when you are opening a bar, you have to, there's so many different things that you're opening. You're opening an aesthetic place. Plus, you're opening actual just basic food and beverage service, and the two can be very different, and yet at the same time, they need to complement each other and go along with each other. So, uh, yeah, I could see that some of these and some of the themes that I, I've uh, we've seen on this list, they go from everything from Star Wars to sci-fi. Some of them could get a little potentially gimmicky.
1: Yeah, and. You know, the theme, right? Okay, well, what is the theme? Is the theme just some branding on artwork and lights? Or is the theme an experience that you have built into uh, what the customer is going to uh, have or see or hear or smell when they walk in? One of them we found was a, a bar called the Bletchley in uh, Kings Road in London, and they describe the process and the experience. There will be about 50 people inside, and as they come in, customers are given missions and puzzles to complete. (laughs) At the end of the first mission, the reward is a ticket to the headquarters and the bar, and then when you get your ticket, you go inside another room. You can choose the ingredients for your drink, and then based on that, your cocktail is made by some other expert bartenders, so really they have incorporated kind of the uh, hunting down feature for the customer to go in and find what they need to complete their mission and then essentially build the basis of their own cocktail. But they might not not even know what the cocktail is that they're going to get Based on the ingredients they've picked, so in that case, it's kind of like a Master Chef competition on TV, where you've got five minutes to go shopping in the uh, in the pantry. When you come back, now you got to make a dish and and uh, have the judges score your dish. But ultimately, here the flip is you're the judge. You get the cocktail, and hopefully, you like it.
2: (laughs) I, I like that they balance the mystery of the bar, sort of solving puzzles. And they kind of do incorporate in th- that into the drink. It's still sort of a mystery what you're going to end up with. And yet the customer has a little bit of control. They at least get to choose the ingredients. They know that they're not going to end up with something that they totally hate. The drink is supposedly being made with them in mind. So what do you think of this one? Is this is this one where you guys think that the the experience would be too gimmicky or would you actually buy in?
1: Oh, it depends on what the mission of puzzles are. You know, <laughs> the puzzles are kind of the uh, mind puzzles and the hands-on puzzles where you're trying to get like, things accomplished with you and your friends around a table, that would be fun. It would be more fun if you had drinks to <laughs> have a good time. I just thinking
3: that. If they give that, you one right? beforehand, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, maybe they give you one beforehand and then your next one gets figured out after you get the puzzles and everything.
2: That's a really good point. Didn't think about that. Maybe some of them are sort of the escape rooms seem to be really popular these days where you have to like, work your way out of situations. Who knows?
1: Uh, the escape room, I would... I would uh, be fearful that you well not because I'd be scared but because I'd be thinking that someone else is going to get scared and they're going to spill their drink all over the floor and you've wasted all that booze. <laughs> What's the point?
2: Very true, very true. Well, another of these bars that we've got as an example this one is in New York.
1: Yeah, Death and & Company. And they are trying to elevate the level of entertainment with the cocktails. And they don't want their bartenders putting as much time and energy into the cocktails uh, as much as they want the entertainment to uh, come forward uh, as opposed to what's in the glass. So uh, they're hosting different theme nights at the bars, uh, one of them is the Walker Inn in LA, where they do micro uh, seasonal micro menus. They do a two-week menu around Halloween's, so they're they're changing their menus based on what's happening seasonally, as opposed to a constant theme that is throughout full time in that experience. That gets the customers coming back if you've got good quality, as opposed to going into a, a bar that has a theme and then deciding am I going to come back or not. Locally, we've <laughs> got Teatro Zanzani, which is the uh, acrobatic based. I don't want to say burlesque show, but it's a mm-hmm. show, right? And it's built around this kind of Cirque du Soleil environment. The news there is they are moving into the old Red Hook Brewery site with two other wineries oh, yeah. in the heart of Woodenville. They're going to have a full-time uh, place for their restaurant and show to happen. And uh, that theme in and of itself has been very popular here for years in the Pacific Northwest region.
3: Yeah, I've never been to one of theirs. Have you?
1: I've not. You know, they occupied that tent across from the uh, Seattle.
3: Seattle um, Center there
2: for a while.
1: The Mm -hmm. Seattle Center downtown, yeah. Uh, And then they lost their lease on that, and they've been looking for a new full-time location. And the Red Hook Brewery is a massive facility, beautiful high-span ceilings. I I think you're going to see lots of amazing Acrobatic shows there, and of course you're gonna have access to great beer, wine, and cocktails when you're there.
3: We'll have to go check it out. I, I feel like I had an experience with this theme bar thing. I, I was just in Vegas last weekend, <laughs> yeah. And, um, we, <laughs> I'd I, be I would, a couple there. Yeah, we were waiting to go out at night and ended up stopping at this place that was in one of the malls called the Sugar Factory, and it was it was kind of like an old-fashioned candy shop, but then also a restaurant. They had all these Instagram posts up on the screen of different celebrities that had been there, and it kind of sucks you in. You're like, this is fun. Yeah. And then we ordered this drink. They had a, definitely a gimmicky drink that comes in this big, almost fish-sized bowl glass, and they pour it. They use dry ice so that it looks like it's smoking. Oh, wow. And it's um, got... Candy in it, very we, Vegas. We yeah, thought, yeah, we thought we would give it a try, but uh, I will. I, I will say, I understand it's called the Sugar Factory, but that was it was so sweet, it was like undrinkable. Just like
2: no, <laughs> I've got to tap
3: out. So I would say that was an example of the uh, the theme oh. detracting from the cocktail for me. And did it seem like the rest of their menu was very much like that, kind of
2: either too sweet or too. To handle. Well, I had a, a burger. The food was fine. Oh, okay. But <laughs> I was going to say, did they make you just eat cotton candy or what no, happened? they had
3: actual, actual meals.
2: That's good. <laughs> I, I guess the closest that I would experience is maybe Ballard has a great place that I love called Adiball, and it's like all the old school pinball games. It's got a lot of just old school video games. I'm not sure video games count as a theme, but the bar sort of, it, it goes very well in my mind with with their style, their theme. It's very casual. It's almost kind of just like a little hole in the wall in this place. They do very simple drinks. Um, there's always just one bartender there. So in in terms of, again, you know what your, your, your experience, you know what to expect from your experience when you go in. I wouldn't say that you go there for really fancy cocktails or anything, but that's also part of it is what is the customer's expectation when they walk in?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we talked off the air about some of the more recent themed restaurants, if you want to call them themed restaurants, started in the 90s and 2000s, and one of them that's probably the most famous is Hooters, Uh, you know, that has a specific theme to it. You talked about Vegas, and they have, at the Excalibur, they have the dinner show with the the knights fighting and the jousting and all that, well, that same type of show and experience exists all over the U.S. in uh, cities with lots of theme parks. That is a very specific theme to that kind of show, or that kind of uh, restaurant, if you will. My mom and dad came back from London recently and went to a restaurant that was uh, operated and the entire waitstaff, from the people who were sitting you down to the waiters, waitresses, servers, bartenders, were all blind. And when you went in, it was pitch black. You had to get to your table in the dark. You had to sit down. They walked you through uh, with their voice where your glasses were, fork, knife, and all that. And you would order uh, in the dark off the menu that was read to you uh, or given to you verbally. And then all the food and drinks were delivered. And uh, the last time you saw the light was when you exited the restaurant two hours later. That was a full immersion experience, and they could not stop talking about it
3: wow that's really interesting (laughs) did you enjoy it
1: i didn't go oh okay sorry i'm too busy to travel overseas these days
2: (laughs) well speaking of full immersion we're going to talk about the full immersion into washington spirits and craft cocktails with dick stevens he's our guest up next on cast club radio about a great event that heritage distilling is involved in it's called proof and you need to know about it it's next on cast club radio Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Right now, we're joined by our friend Dick Stevens, who puts on an amazing event every year. Proof, for people who aren't uh, familiar with this, it's been around now six years. Can you tell us a little bit about the origins behind it, about the spirit of the festival?
0: Well, uh, thanks for having us back on again. It's Mm -hmm. a real pleasure. I think one of my resume high-water marks is I got to be on the very first episode of of your show, and it aired back last spring when we were talking (laughs) about, or fall, talking about James Beard. So um, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, and congratulations on the the show.
2: Thank
0: you. Proof Washington you know, started up with the initial conversation with the Washington Distillers Guild um, a little over six years ago. And we went to the leadership of the guild at that time, and there were people like, uh, Stephen Stone from Sound Spirits, and Jason Parker from, from Copperworks, which didn't even exist then. There was no brick and mortar, there was no fluid, there was nothing. There was Skip Tognetti, who, uh, is with Letterpress, and, and we all started talking about what, what this could be. And from the very beginning, we said we only were interested in doing the flagship version of this. We didn't want to just do a tasting where we had we had great distilleries there, but we wanted to make sure that we had great food and great environment. And the goal was to try to set what we hope would be the standard of a grand tasting for the Washington Spirits. I think we've done that, uh, but it's been a team effort. The Washington Distillers Guild and us have just been two peas in a pod, and uh, one can't do it without the other, and we've just been blessed to have such a great partnership with the Guild. And we've kind of mimicked a little bit about what we saw happen with Taste Washington when we first got involved with that years ago with the wine industry by working with the flagship group on the wine side and saying, you know what, we're not going to let any big brands come in here. That's that's not okay. You're not going to see any major companies come in and be a part of proof no matter what, how much money they have in their hand. And over the years, we have had to turn them away. So this is about showcasing local, showcasing the the, the alliance of the Washington Distillers Guild. And then if the guild decides they want to see some groups come in from Oregon and see some groups come in from Montana or Idaho, uh, that has been a neat bridge that they've used proof to build between other states. And when we started, I think there were 25 distilleries. Now there are over 100. Wow. And I think it's just a reflection of where the business is. And that's our job is to take that one day and do a snapshot for the public so they can see, feel, taste, touch and hear exactly what's going on in this movement. It's pretty exciting.
2: That is very cool. Now, more than 40 Washington distillers, correct? Food from local restaurants?
0: Yes, the food is a big part of this. And I think to be blunt the people who run other good events the hardest part is this to is to get good restaurants and and good catering companies to come in particularly in the summer when when things are going great but we've really solid restaurant partners and we're still bringing them in but groups like you know 190 sunset and the ballroom uh are big parts we've got the tom douglas group involved again uh we've got uh, a sushi element we've got uh Russell Lowell Catering, Russell's uh, uh, Russell's Restaurant and Loft, in the Carlisle Room, and we also want to have some some dessert elements, but we don't want it to be all about desserts. We want those proteins in there, we want those grains in there to really balance all the grand tasting that's going on. And it's impossible to to, to taste all forty stations. Plus, we have these fifteen custom crafted cocktail zones. So, the food is important. Um, and when we look at trying to do the event properly we want it to be conversational we want people to be able to go across the table and and talk to people like justin and, and other distilleries about their story and every one of these distilleries is like honestly like like a reality tv show story right everybody got to the distillery thing through another path in life and i think that proof has done that there's a huge social media conversation that comes on board with it too I think that that's what's trying to set the the event apart and it's in the summer so we've got to try to keep it fun and casual but HIP, and we're really trying to service what those people are looking for.
1: Yeah, and the good news is there are still tickets available for people who are interested in, in attending this year's Proof Washington event. So how do they go about finding and buying tickets now?
0: Well, the event is, is bound to sell out again. So the VIP tickets, uh, all these are available if you go to proofwashington.org. That's our home page. And you can see all the distilleries that are signed up, all the restaurants that are signed up. We have a lot of great exhibitors and sponsors that are all. Focused on this culture, those tickets can be purchased directly off the website. Justin and, and the VIP is right around two two hundred fifty people. Those are really customized tickets. Uh, they get a special Glen Karen crystal uh, tasting glass that we have shipped in from Scotland for this event. And those are still for sale. We've got about 25% of those tickets are still left open. And then the general admission grand tasting tickets are also for sale. And uh, usually about two weeks out from the event, things started getting tougher about getting tickets. So right now we're right in that sweet spot.
1: All right. And uh, when people show up, obviously they get a chance to meet the maker, right? That's what we talk about. Come meet the maker. Absolutely. That that means going to the, the booth. Every distillery will have their own booth, pouring samples, talking about their products. Same thing on the food side, right? The food vendors are talking about the food samples they've brought, why they made them, and how they pair. In the past years, we this is our fifth year as a company having a booth, and we're honored to be involved again. Any breakout sessions or a chance for kind of a more organized meet-the-maker Q&A deal separate and apart from the tastings? Well, certainly on
0: the VIP, uh, for people who buy a VIP ticket, only about 25 or 30% of the total audience that will be in there, and hardly anybody comes and goes for half an hour and leaves. They stay the entire time because there's so much to do in there. That first hour really allows people to have a real discussion with people like yourself or people that have just hit the scene or people that are starting to work uh, more into expanding what they have in their portfolio. Maybe they're starting to add a whiskey now because it's been resting in a barrel. To me, that is a big benefit of the VIP ticket is you're actually talking to the person or somebody that's a leader in that organization about how they got to this point and they're great stories what we do love is our use the booze stage which is literally up on the stage in the Fremont studios which is where the event is on, on July 7 um, we have four sessions and we pull the drape and we really want it to be a serious but not intimidating conversation so uh, our topics, uh, we've already been selected for this year as Amaros and liqueurs. That's our 545 session on the Use the Booze stage. And At 645, it's Booze and Oysters, and that's the name of it. We're, we're, we're trying to use the name that cocktail culture people use. We don't want to come off hoity-toity, and the Huxley Wallace Collective is the group that's going to going to lead that. And then at 7.30, we have the this, this sense of sense and the, senses, the sensory understanding of the actual sense that come from, from the fluid. So we've got the author of, of Tasting Whiskey and the Aroma Academy and Glenn Karen uh, are all going to be a part of that conversation at 7.30. And these are about 20, 25 minutes. And there's always samples up there so that people can actually go through it. It's like a seminar, but not, it's not serious, it's fun. And then the last part is just called, ca- it's just called cocktails, and I think we're really going to focus just on cocktails that are exciting for summertime and how people can hit the nail on the head so that's not too sweet or it's not too powerful. We want everybody to come to proof to be an inch taller on their knowledge, mm-hmm. and there's a lot to learn, um, and as these spirits become more prevalent in our community. I'd liken it to what people were like in the wine world here fifteen years ago or twenty years ago. People didn't understand all the things about Cabernet's and Syrah's and Chardonnays, and there's lots of different types of, of Rieslings, same thing going on here with Spirit. So the Use the Boost stage is really a blast, fun, and puts people right back on the floor again to taste when they come walking off the stairs.
2: That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, the,
1: the big thing about Proof Washington in the past, and this year's lineup is even bigger and more robust than past years, you've done a, an amazing job of, of elevating the experiences, This is not your typical kind of summer beer festival. People go and get sloshed, right? This is an opportunity for people who are interested, who are novices and maybe new to the spirit scene to come learn, get some really good education, exposure to to brands Mm -hmm. and products and how-to, and also for connoisseurs who want to dig even deeper. And that setup you just described is going to be an amazing experience for customers and patrons to expose themselves to that wide range of experiences. You're totally right. Well, and the best secret is there's a bottle shop. And for people who come to Proof, uh, I know as as distillers, oftentimes they use Proof as the place to launch a new product or a new brand they've never released into the market. And this is a chance for people who are going to come and try this new thing for the first time. And they've set up through the Guild, an on-site bottle shop to buy bottles of this products to go. And the, the nice thing is in conjunction with the guild, profits all stay with the Washington Distillers Guild, the nonprofit association, so they can continue to do more programming to advance the interest of Washington Spirits. But this is a chance for customers to get their hands on bottles that are probably not in distribution anywhere else, not at any liquor store, grocery store or anywhere else. Chance of the walk home with a bottle of something new that they have found and fallen in love with that they're not going to get access to otherwise.
0: See, this is an important piece of the event. I, I, I really want to drive this home. When people buy the product there, the piece that is added to the sale, that money goes right back to the Guild to make sure that they have a competitive advocate in Olympia and around the country to make sure that the Washington Distillers Guild has proper political balance conversation with the people who make laws in the state. So when we peop, when somebody buys a bottle right across the table, and that's how you can do it, you can order the product right there at that person's tasting station. When you purchase that product, we'll hold on to it. You can take it home at the end. That money that's being brought forward is going to move this in this industry forward for the guild. And this is really important. So the money that's being spent in there does actually fund that effort. And I can't emphasize enough of people looking to stock up their liquor cabinet for the summer. Please do it at Proof because it makes a real difference for this nonprofit group. And all the product that's for sale, there are hundreds of opportunities down there. You cannot find this anywhere else. It's very exciting, as Justin alluded to.
1: All right, Dick, uh, thanks for joining us. And people who want to buy tickets, they're going quickly. Go to ProofWashington.org, and uh, we will see you all july 7th thank you
2: thanks dick make sure you get your tickets to proof washington before they sell out it's a great event in the meantime up next on cast club radio we've got a great cocktail for you to make this time of year plus speaking of cocktails do you think they should be trademarked that's next on cast club radio Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. Before we wrap up here, we've got a great cocktail recipe that revolves around Flag Day. Because that is coming up on June 14th. That's just in a few minutes here. But first, should cocktails be trademarked? Should bars or companies be allowed to trademark your favorite cocktails? That is an interesting question that I've not really spent much time thinking about.
1: Yeah, intellectual property. Its value, it's uh, it has uh, it's an asset if you can get a hold of it and own it and protect it. We found an article here talking about innovations in cocktails and how companies and bars and individuals have tried to trademark them. And now trademark is not the same as a patent. A patent is an invention you have. A trademark is a name or something associated with a brand or product uh, that indicates the source of that brand or product. Not the same as a patent. So here we talk about the Dark and Stormy. The Dark and Stormy um, is of course a uh, cocktail. Uh, made with rum, ginger beer, lime, and uh, I didn't know this, but it's owned by Gosling's.
3: I did not know that either.
1: Yeah. Sazerac is a cocktail uh, with uh, absinthe and rye and other items so that you can make different riffs on it, and Sazerac, trademark name, is owned by Sazerac, which (laughs) owns lots of different brands of booze. This article talks about Earl Bernhardt, they interview him, co-founder of Tropical Isle in New Orleans. He says he started the Tropical Isle in 1984 at the World's Fair. He uh, had a drink that became a hit with the college students. Every Saturday night, him and his partner would sit in front of the bar... And with everybody walking by, they would uh, see the hurricane glasses. So they thought they wanted to come up with something uh, green. They made this cocktail called the hand grenade. And after experimenting, they came up with a recipe, and it has 13 ingredients. That they keep them secret. Oh. Uh, they sell it only at their locations. They serve it on the rocks and frozen, and uh, they call it the hand grenade. And they have a skinny version called the hand grenade martini. So one of his clients was a lawyer and said, hey, you should trademark that. So they trademarked it, the hand grenade. And he says it's the best decision he's ever made. Now... I'm going to tell you, what are the practical realities of this? Let's say you come up with an amazing cocktail and you want uh, to name it and you come up with a very clever name. We're going to call this the Hurricane or the Sazerac or whatever. Now, somebody else in the field, a bar across the country, sees that and they say, oh, that's a great thing. I'm going to make the same cocktail, but with a different recipe because you're not patenting the formula. Mm -hmm. That person has only protected the name, the Hurricane or in this case, the hand grenade. Mm -hmm. Uh, How are you going to enforce that? If you're a bar in New Orleans, you can't possibly scour all the bars in Seattle to determine if someone is using a cocktail called the hand grenade. And even if they do come up with a cocktail called the hand grenade, does it look the same, does it taste the same, does it have the same ingredients? So really where you're going to defend your intellectual property rights is if a big chain, like Mm -hmm. let's say Applebee's, or TGIF for Buffalo Wild Wings says, hey, we love that. We're going to start making a hand grenade cocktail. We're going to offer that in the menu at all 1,400 locations. Well, now you get got a big beast that you can sue and that can give you notoriety. But if you tangle with the beast, be prepared to pay for it because enforcing trademark rights is not cheap. It's very expensive.
2: you got to have a big retainer, a good lawyer. So, <laughs> yeah, I, is that yeah. part of their motivation for... This bar that uh, sold the hand grenade, they talk about that they've defended it over the years and that plenty of people have tried to make it despite the fact that they've kept their ingredients secret, which is the surprising part to me because 13 ingredients and some of them being secret. um, Is that part of the reason of, like, is there incentive to keep the recipe hidden as much as you possibly can?
1: Well, again, the recipe is not protected. It's the name. The hand grenade is what they're protecting.
2: But, I mean, just... So that people can't even replicate your drink on a basic level because yeah, if you're if if just the name that's protected.
1: Yeah, so they would not be in this case trademarking the recipe. The recipe is a trade secret. Uh the name is what they're trying to protect, the hand grenade. And, you know, somebody else might decide to come up with a cocktail that they want to call the hand grenade that is completely different in flavor, look, appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh but again, they have to enforce their rights. It's the obligation is on them as the trademark owner to go out and enforce their rights. They've got a identify somebody who's using it, the name, the hand grenade, in beer, wine, or spirits in the restaurant trade, and then they need to send them a cease and desist letter. And if they persist, they need to, you know, go and enforce their rights with litigation. And, again, a small bar in Ballard, in Seattle, who might be making 100 of these a week, is it worth this guy's time in New Orleans to find every bar across the country that is using the term hand grenade on a, on a particular cocktail? Are they likely to even find all the infringers? No, they're not likely to find them all because we have thousands and tens of thousands of bars across the country. Yeah.
2: Well, Mora, you had so, that great question off the air about, well, I'm surprised more people haven't trademarked theirs. And maybe this is why, because it's just yeah, yeah, too daunting
3: a, uh, a process. I guess I would think maybe more just the, the bartender or the bar wants the notoriety than you're actually going to go around suing people. Yeah, true. Um, I actually uh, bartended a lot of Mardi Gras in Colorado, not in New Orleans. But I and I made a lot of hurricanes, but I've actually never heard of a hand grenade. Never. Wow. So I maybe it's not not quite as famous. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, you need to spend more time in New Orleans.
2: Yes. (laughs) One cocktail that you can freely make at home this week. It's inspired by Flag Day. What is the cocktail of the week?
1: Yeah, so Flag Day is June fourteenth. It's coming up right around the corner. And we want to celebrate red, white, and blue with a red, white, and blue punch. So we are making patriotic punch. Uh, and this can be done in batches, so this is perfect for summer barbecues and holidays. Uh, this starts with three cups of our uh, Heritage Distilling Company strawberry-flavored vodka, six cups of limeade, three cups of club soda or Sprite, half a cup of fresh blueberries, one cup of sliced strawberries, and one thinly sliced pear. Add all the ingredients to a punch bowl, stir. And serve.
3: That sounds delightfully yeah. refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's
1: got a little bit of red, white, and blue. It's got the tanginess and tartness of the limeade, sweetness of the strawberry. Of course, it's got the vodka, which we all want. And uh, you might even get some uh, sherbet or some kind of uh, something uh, ice cream to float in the punch bowl if you Ooh. want to add a little bit of creaminess to it.
2: I was going to say, taking advantage of plenty of those uh, fresh fruits that we've got going on, especially. In the Pacific Northwest. That's right. To find this recipe, as always, you can go online to heritagedistilling.com and check it out. Or you can also download any past episodes of Cast Club Radio this episode as well.
1: We're on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. And, of course, don't forget to rate us on iTunes.
2: Perfect. In the meantime, everybody have a fabulous and safe weekend. Drink responsibly. Enjoy the movies if you end up going to see Ocean's 8, and we'll see you next week.
1: And don't forget to go to proofwashington.org and get your tickets to the upcoming Proof Spirits Festival. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by
0: Heritage Distilling, part of Cairo Weekends on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Check us
2: out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes.
0: Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM.